Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by their good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. We use Johnson's Air Conditioning, and you can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Visit the website lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific uh, guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. He's an author. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. As usual, for the past 15 years on Monday morning, we talk about current global events up to the date and up to the minute. We'll also visit with Larry Reed, endowed prefer- excuse me, he is a president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg will be joining us as well. He is Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He formerly was written several books, uh, and uh, he knows what's going on inside the Beltway. It is January the 11th, and on this day in 1908, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt declared the massive Grand Canyon in northwestern Arizona as a national monument. Uh, Though Native Americans lived in the area as early as the 13th century, the first European sighting of the canyon wasn't until 1540 by members of an expedition headed by the Spanish explorer Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Because of its remote and inaccessible location, several centuries passed before North American settlers really explored the canyon. In 1869, geologist John Wesley Powell led a group of 10 men in the first difficult journey down the rapids of the Colorado and along the length of the 277-mile gorge in four rowboats. It must have been a rough ride for some parts of it. By the end of the 19th century, the Grand Canyon was attracting thousands of tourists each year. One famous visitor was President Theodore Roosevelt, a New Yorker with a particular affection for the West. After becoming president in 1901, after the assassination of President William McKinley, Roosevelt made environmental conservation a major part of his presidency after establishing the National Wildlife Refuge to protect the country's animals, fish, and birds. Roosevelt turned his attention to federal regulation of public lands, though a region could be given national park status indicating that all private development on the land was illegal only by an act of Congress. Roosevelt's cut down on red tape by beginning a new presidential practice of granting a similar national monument designation to some of the West's greatest treasures. In January 1908, Roosevelt exercised this right to make more than 800,000 acres of the Grand Canyon area into a national monument. Let the great wonder of nature remain now as it is, he declared. You cannot improve on it. But what you can do is keep it for your children, your children's children, and all who come after you, the one great sight which every American should see. Congress didn't officially outlaw private development in the Grand Canyon until 1919 when President Woodrow Wilson signed the Grand Canyon National Park Act. Today, more than 5 million folks visit the Grand Canyon each year. The canyon floor is accessible by foot, mule, or boat, and whitewater rafting. Hiking and running in the area are especially popular. Many choose to conserve their energies and simply take a breathtaking view from the canyon's south rim, some 7,000 feet above sea level, and marvel at the vista, virtually unchanged for over 400 years. Uh, I've not been to the uh, Grand Canyon, but I've certainly flown over it several times. It is breathtakingly beautiful, just a marvelous uh, part of the United States. What a treasure we have in this entire country. Well, Saturday, uh, the Florida Department of Health reported 292 cases of COVID uh, and one additional death. And then uh, yesterday, 139 new cases and two additional deaths, of course, with COVID. That doesn't mean necessarily they died of COVID. The seven-day moving average in Collier County is 167 new cases per day. Uh, news is that our own Senator, State Senator Kathleen Pasadoma has tested positive COVID for COVID and staying home during the first week of committee meetings in Tallahassee. Our senator stated she has a mild cold-like symptom. In a tweet on Sunday, I don't anticipate my illness to stand in the way of the important work plan for this week, she said. Uh, appointments are, uh, by the way, I'm hopeful. I actually sent her an email this morning and 
asked about her health, and I'm hopeful she can join us tomorrow. It'd be uh, interesting to talk to her, not only about what's happening in Tallahassee, but all, also about her s- symptoms and uh, how she, what she's doing and how she's recovering. If you're concerned about COVID and getting the vaccine, appointments are available next week for seniors 65 and older to receive the vaccination in Collier County. The vaccine is also available for healthcare personnel, personnel with direct patient contact. Uh, online appointments are required and can be made by starting at 9 a.m. through Eventbrite, Eventbrite by visiting Collier County COVID Vaccines. That's all one word. Collier County COVID Vaccines.eventbrite.com. Now, I read that uh, people who recover from COVID 19 are likely to have robust and long lasting immunity that lasts for years. This is according to a new study I found in Science Magazine. Well, think about this. We have 24,443 positive tests in Collier County, and only 363 deaths, by the way, with COVID-19. Again, not because of or caused by COVID-19. But anyhow, that uh, if we have 24,000 positive tests, there's probably a multiple of that, several time, multiples of that, of uh, people who have it and didn't know about it. Herd immunity could be more effective right now than taking the vaccine, although many people are eager to take the vaccine and probably should. Well, the House this week will take up a resolution to impeach President Donald Trump for the second time in less than two years over his actions and, quote-unquote, encouraging a mob that stormed the Capitol, said Nancy Pelosi. In protecting, here's a quote, in protecting our Constitution and our democracy, we will act with urgency because this president represents an imminent threat to both she said in a letter Sunday to House Democrats, at the, as the days go by, the horror of the ongoing assault on our democracy per, uh, perpetuated by this president is intensified, and so is the immediate need for action. I can't believe this woman. Unbelievable. She said that Democrat leave, leaders in uh, Monday will request unanimous consent for a separate resolution urging Vice President Pence to convene the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment of the Constitution to declare the president incapable of executing the duties of his office, she said. So she said Pence should respond within 24 hours. I don't think he will respond. But anyhow, so what is she afraid of? What's the big deal? He's out of office in a week, for crying out loud. The economy is shaky right now. Biden says he wants to unify the country. And her response is to impeach. Well, I don't think that's going to create too much unity. There's about 75 million of us that are, out, are quite disappointed in the election results. I mean, I still believe that the president won the election, and uh, this is a big cover-up. But uh, nevertheless, Biden's elected. He's going to take office on the 20th. Now, the actions by big media and the left are right out of the socialist Saul Alinsky playbook, aren't they? That's what I see. The left is trying to cancel Donald Trump and his legacy, and they're trying to, de- to disable the links of communication between the president and the quote-unquote deplorables. I'm not kidding. They're really trying to do that. on Saturday. Uh, well, on Friday, of course, they kicked uh, President Trump off of uh, uh, Twitter for life. On Saturday, Amazon removed the social media platform Parler from its website hosting servers. And that's a good social net- networking uh, uh, outlet favored by conservatives. Is being targeted and following the riot of the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday in the wake of President Donald Trump migrating to the platform after he was banned for, by social media giants Twitter and Facebook. Parler will need to find another hosting service because Amazon says, oh, we're not going to host anymore. Now, here's the, uh, according to BuzzFeed, the Amazon website trust and safety team told Parler chief policy officer that calls for violence on Parler violated its terms of service. Now, I've never seen a call for violence, violence, but nevertheless, Amazon added that this morning you shared that that you have a plan to more proactively moderate violent content, but plan to do so mutually, manually with volunteers. It's our view that this nascent plan to use volunteers to promptly identify and remove dangerous content will not work in light of the rapidly growing number of violent posts. Are you kidding me? I've never seen a violent post on uh, Parler. But anyhow, the email, email continued. Recently, we've seen a steady increase in this violent content on your website all of which violates our terms. It's clear that Parler does not have an effective process to comply with the AUS terms of service. We cannot provide services to a customer that's unable to effectively identify and remove content uh, that encourages or incites violence against others. Well, 
there is <laughs> if there is violent content, it should be eliminated. No question about that. Uh, but uh, just because Trump supporters uh, continue to support him, that doesn't mean we're violent, does it? I don't think so. Google removed Parler from its app store on Friday. Apple's doing the same thing. Uh, to me, you know, quite frankly, in my mind, I just consider all this and think to myself, what are they afraid of? And uh, it kind of makes me smile because I don't think 75 million of us are going to go away. We're not violent. We're happy. Actually, I'm very happy. But it made me smile to think that these people are so it's psyched up and uh, fearful that they're willing to take these actions. It just leads me to believe that their agenda, they're concerned about uh, with the small support that they have, that they'll be able to complete what they're trying to accomplish. The best thing they're trying to do, the, what they're trying to do, first and foremost, is to cancel Trump. That's their goal, in my view. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, now building a performing arts center in the downtown Naples area. I hope you'll find out more by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. He's a, an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Great for kids of all ages, including you and I. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. All right, so we're going to talk about current global events, and uh, let's start off with coronavirus. Uh, my understanding is that uh, Israel's doing quite well with regard to you know, vaccination. Just be interested to find out what's going on there and what's happening as a result in the, you know, the activity of people. Right. So 
two things are happening simultaneously. Number one, actually, Israel's in another lockdown because uh, the virus had gotten out of control, primarily because of the ultra-Orthodox community and the schools being open. They reopened the schools, and what people have to understand is Israeli schools have, on average, twice as many students per classroom than American schools do. Mm. So social distancing gets much more difficult when you have twice as many kids and in the same size. It's not like we have huge classrooms. Mm-hmm. So schools have been a major source. On the other hand, this country has been vaccinating very quickly. We're now up to almost 1.9 million people have been vaccinated, and that's out of a population of 9 million. So we're at about the 20% number. Wow. 20% number, but it's more important the fact that at this point, 70% of people 60 and over have received the first vaccine, and 80% of people who are 70 and over. So the most vulnerable part of the population has all received their first dose. Starting um, today, uh, the population, or uh, yesterday, excuse me, starting yesterday, the population is beginning, those people who got the first dose, these are all the Pfizer vaccines are starting to get their second dose. Uh-huh. I'm getting my second dose already tomorrow. Um, so um, it's moving out very quickly. And it's being done so well that Pfizer has agreed to put Israel at the top of the list in terms of uh, giving enough vaccines quick enough so the whole population can be vaccinated within the next eight weeks because Israel turns out as a, is a great lab for Pfizer. Because what is Israel's great advantage here? Israel has four separate HMOs. Right. And everybody in the country belongs to one of the four HMOs. Four HMOs compete with each other. In other words, um, so everyone, each one competes for better service, better doctors, and they're highly, highly digital. They became computerized over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So every single HMO has complete records of every per, every person, every health condition they've had, everything across the board, and they're integrated with the hospitals as well. So the result is uh, this will be a tremendous database to see the effect of the vaccine, both in terms of its effectiveness and, of course, any side effects and any seeing whether you know side effects could be correlated to some disease or some other condition, whatever it could be. So Israel's turning out to be the, the lab lab for that. And again, because of these HMOs, they're the ones who are distributing the vaccine. They've set up centers in all the major cities and, some, and also in the smaller cities for vaccination. Mm-hmm. And they've invited uh, their members to sign up. And basically, you sign up, you go there, and you don't wait online even. Maybe 10 minutes you wait, you get your vaccine, and you're out again. No, no paperwork. You just take your card from from the HMO. You swipe it, and two minutes later, you get your shot, and you're gone. Now that sounds like a smooth so, operation, Mark. So it seems incongruous to me that they're keeping the place on lockdown with uh, while you have such a high percentage of people who've been vaccinated. Well, the view is see. Here's the view. The view is that in two or three weeks, don't forget when you first get the vaccine, you do not have immunity. It takes two to three weeks for immunity to begin. And full immunity doesn't take, full being 95%, doesn't take place until a week after the second vaccine is given. So the view is, how many people do we want to be, you know, no one wants to be the last person killed in a war. So here you have a situation where in another three weeks, all the vulnerable population in this country, or nearly all of it, will have been vaccinated. And so you don't want a situation which is taking place now that lots and lots of people are getting uh, getting the virus, including people who are still vulnerable. Yeah. No. By the so way, I should, is, is it, I, I should let hmm? I should let our listeners know that you are in uh, Tel Aviv right now. So uh, you're in Israel. Right. I forgot for, for, to mention that. So uh, what's this doing to economic activity? I mean, is the you seeing a dip in economic activity or? Well, there was, dip, there was okay. So there's ups and downs. Dip, there was dips in economic activity um, every time there is a uh, a lockdown. It seems, by and large, limited to two or three sectors, obviously the restaurants, which can only do, um, not even do takeaway, they have to do delivery only right now. And, of course, the tourism industry has been destroyed, basically, over the last year. I mean, Israel is a center for tourism, but Israel is lucky in the fact that tourism only represents 5% of its GMP. Yeah. So you, so you know, I can't help but I, I can't help but notice a sense of pride in your voice on how uh, Israel is handling uh, this the distribution of the vaccine and the coronavirus. Uh, how about the rest of the world? What do you see? A lot of a mess in most of the world. Um, Britain, who has both, is already doing the Oxford, has only done less than five percent of the population and promises to have everyone vaccinated by next fall. 
So that's very slow. France, for reasons that no one understands, has only vaccinated 55,000 people, period. Uh. Germany's had a mess as well. Um, so the most of the world is not doing very well. And, of course, we know the United States also has had its its problems also. Yeah. Of course, the United States, part of the problem is every state is a king at the moment. And there are so many you know differences in between state and state and how they're doing it, which who's getting what. And also, there's no, you know, there's no central ability uh, to distribute the vaccine in the same way that exists in some other countries. Yeah, and you know, here in Collier so, County, we're, we're actually so fortunate to have the governor we, we have right now, but it uh, seems like a, sm- uh, a smooth system right now for people in Collier County, the county we live in, uh, that uh, you simply uh, sign up at a, at a website, Bright Star, whatever that thing is, Bright Lighter, and any of it, you sign up uh, for a day to get the vaccine. You go there and you wait to get vaccinated. The problem I see is that uh, the number of vaccines available, and we're doing uh, people who are exposed to he- in healthcare situations as well as uh, people over age 65. So the problem I see is that, uh, for example, in Collier County, I, I, I think I saw that there's like 3,500 vaccines available. <laughs> that's that's going to take a long time to get the whole county uh, vaccinated. Right. So, I mean, one of the things, um, one of the risks I understand the Biden administration is about to do that's a risk, is saying that they're going to release more more of the ones that are being held back for the second vaccine, assuming that they can get uh, Pfizer to, to backfill it, yeah. to make sure there's enough production to make sure that the second vaccine becomes available when time comes for the vaccine. And of course, the Moderna vaccine has the advantage of it. There's a four-week lag between the first and second dose. Mm-hmm. So you have more time to fill the backlog. Yeah, um, It's a tremendous logistical job. I mean, let's be honest. It is, um, and the, the, um, I saw an encouraging word. I think it was in Science Magazine that suggested that people have coronavirus or who have had it apparently will have immunity for quote unquote four years, which is a very encouraging. Right. That's that's one assumption. You know, one of the things we don't know. Again, we always have to remember that the virus is only a little over a year old, mm-hmm. and so there's so many unknowns. I mean, how can we know for sure that they're going to have immunity for five years or ten years until we've find out that people actually have immunity for five or ten years. That's true. Uh, it's, it's the same way with, we don't even know how long the vaccine is good for. Quite frankly, uh, Mark, i got to tell you, I'm not sure that we know too much anything because there's so many disparate points of view coming from uh, the CDC, from Burks, from, uh, from various sources. It's very, very confusing indeed. But nevertheless, hopefully we're going to get through this thing. So listen, we have so much more to talk about. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thank you so much for listening to the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I proudly serve on their board. One of their initiatives is programs to help people get off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. We'll talk about what's happening in the Beltway. Right now, we continue the conversation with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. 
Always a pleasure, Bob. So, uh, breaking news in Iran. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yes, the um, the person in charge of the United Nations uh, Atomic Energy Commission announced uh, maybe 15 minutes ago that Iran has now reached is quickly going to reach the 20% enrichment point of uranium, and which is considered a danger point because between going once you're at 20. And jumping ahead to enough enrichment for a bomb is not a big deal, from what I understand, technically. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, the policy—you know—the policy has failed at this point, and um, a lot of concerns there. What's going to happen? Because they're racing towards making a bomb. Uh, maximum pressure has not worked, and we're going to see what the Biden administration is going to try to do. It's they're, they're being. They're being um, greeted with a very, very serious problem, a hot potato, shall we say. Yeah, so what, so, see, the, uh, we, we've seen this, uh, what, do we, what do we call these accords, in any event, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and uh, right now, it's, it looks like a lot of this is to further isolate or to identify Iran as the enemy. And I'm talking about, uh, what is it called? What kind of accord? Solid- Abraham Accords. Abraham Accords, thank you. So... Uh, and then my two questions are: What's happening with the populace in Iran, and uh, with regard to a, the coronavirus, with regard to inflation, with regard to all those internal and economic problems? And then uh, what's what's happening with regard to this isolation uh, of, of Iran? Okay, so two parts to it. So first of all, I mean, nothing has um, improved, shall we say, the least. The coronavirus is still very much part of Iran. They actually made the Ayatollah came out with a statement. Yesterday, I think it was, that he would not accept uh, vaccines from the United States or Great Britain because they're just trying to uh, try on the Iranian people and turn them into guinea pigs. We won't take vaccines from these countries. Mm-hmm. Um, so theoretically, they developed their own vaccine, which they just tested on the first person. We, where that goes. Uh, look, they're in big trouble economically, but we've learned a long time ago that it's very hard to squeeze a, a um, totalitarian regime economically. Yeah, um, it has not worked historically. I mean, we can, the only place it's worked in any which way is South Africa, and that's a whole other story. Yeah, it has not uh, worked in there, Mark. <laughs> it's, what? It's not working there because. Uh, well, no, it's not South Africa. Yeah. Well, differently, I'm talking back the end of apartheid. I'm talking about. Yeah, right. But it's that, things that are going downhill work, there. Better for worse, and how? But I'm just saying that was the only time we've seen never work with Cuba, for instance. Yeah. Certainly not work with North Korea. Yeah. Um. So it's never really worked, because if you're an authoritarian regime, all you care about is maintaining power and people be damned, so to speak. Yeah, well, I don't think so, it's going to work here either, but we'll we'll find out. So uh, what about North Korea? Well, North Korea announced yesterday, the day before yesterday, that the United States is now the enemy number one of North Korea because of its continued belligerence, and they were going to redouble their effort to produce more uh, nuclear weapons to defend against the United States. And then today, the great leader Kim has been re-elected as the great leader of North Korea in free and open elections. Uh, <laughs> oh my so gosh! Even I, you and I got to vote, right? So um, <laughs> that's unbelievable. Another, you know, so an, an, another problem that that the world faces. Yeah. So this is—I um, mean—it's a saber rattling is happening at a time when there's a. A change of power, a peaceful exchange of power, right now in the United States. So, uh, how is the world reacting to uh, to what the the events in on Wednesday last Wednesday? Mostly shock. I mean, you can look, go across the board. All the democracies were shocked, scared, uh, very concerned. People not believing this could be the United States, that things like this could happen in the United States. Everybody being concerned, could something like this happen locally and trying to make, you know, comparisons, etc. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing that ties everybody in the democratic world together is the issue of fake news. And everyone in, throughout, throughout the world is dealing with this issue of alternative media that's mostly fake and the lack of, of any effective, received uh, media that everyone can believe in. There's no Walter Cronkite anymore. That is exactly and right. That's a problem. And so everyone is concerned about that all over the democratic world. Now, some of the less democratic people, although he didn't say so publicly, I can be quite sure that uh, President Putin was was quite gleeful to see what, what took place. I'm pretty sure that the Chinese were just as happy, yeah. uh, saying only our system will keep you know 
our capable things and our system thinks that this won't happen because we maintain control. Um, I should mention the fact we didn't put this on the list, but I think it's important to mention the fact that in Hong Kong, they arrested everybody who had anything to do with the opposition parties over la- over the last week. Well, and how about Ma disappearing? The guy, from, uh, the founder of Alphabet, is <laughs> that's how they handle the problems. They just uh, get rid of the problems. Right. So not founder of Alphabet, founder of um, uh, Badu. Yeah, okay, excuse me, yes. Alphabet is Google. But the guy's the, like the wealthiest guy in China. Well, yeah, from... the guy founder of Baudu, he's disappeared. We haven't heard from him. We haven't seen him in two months. Happened to coincide when he criticized the regulation in China. So that's the Chinese. Look, the Chinese uh, are a dictatorship. I mean, I don't. everyone talks about communism. It's not communism. It's no. a dictatorship. But it's, a, it's a fascist dictatorship that has the nomenclature of communism because it was once a communist country, but right now it's purely a fascist state. Yes. And we need to keep that in mind. Oh, Mark, they, to, they call themselves the Chinese Communist Party, so I mean... That is, I know, because they, that's, that was who they were, you know, what are they going to re, rename themselves the Chinese Fascist Party? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> yeah, the... the, the uh, the crooks or whatever, no, they're not going to do that. The rebranding, yeah. you know. <laughs> I don't think so. You're absolutely right. So, uh, uh, but nevertheless, uh, right now, I think probably the world is, uh, notwithstanding the events in, uh, in on Wednesday, I think probably the world is thinking, boy, you know, for example, China's got to be so pleased if Biden's going to be the president, right? And I think uh, uh, Europe no, is probably... I think China's very worried the fact there'll be an actual president in operating in the United States. And this is where we disagree, but um, that's really the key here is there'll be an administration with competent people, whether they'll succeed or not, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. The challenges are tremendous at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know they took whatever you want to say about competency. If you remember way way back, um, you and I had a discussion when I was supporting uh, Hillary Clinton over over Obama when Obama was first first uh, running. I can even remember where we where I was in a parking lot talking to you about that discussion. Mm-hmm. And I was against Obama because I thought that Obama didn't have the experience to run to be president. Mm-hmm. I'm a strong believer that um, government requires experience. Mm-hmm. And experienced people are more competent in doing what needs to be done. Well, they're, they're, more, they're can, more competent in the experience they've had, in the experiences they've had. Uh, but you see, the, pro- the problem is, when we look back at history and we look back at all presidents, forget the current president for the moment, but we look back at presidents that, who succeeded in moving their agenda. You can question whether you agree with their agenda or don't agree with their agenda. You can look at LBJ, you can look at FDR, um, you can look at um, Theodore Roosevelt a little bit less, but also you'd be surprised how much experience he had at a very young age. Uh, except for Lincoln, which is a whole other story, most of the presidents that accomplished more of their agenda than less of their agenda were presidents who had some sort of experience mm-hmm. and knew what they were doing. Um, even Ronald Reagan, you know, we forget the fact that Ronald Reagan was the governor of, yeah. of the largest state in the nation for eight years. How about Woodrow Wilson? Woodrow Wilson was a little more problematic, yeah. and he ended up getting us into some problems, let's put it that way. Absolutely. Uh, too much of an idealist and did not handle the U.S. and World War One all that well. So... You know, experience counts, and so experience counts not only, of course, for the president, whoever they may be, but also for you know all this, all the whether it's a secretary of state or whether it's the you know which go across the board. It doesn't make a difference what it is. Um, experience lets you be more effective. Yeah. Now, does it ensure you make the right policy decisions? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Your experience might take you down the wrong path. It might take you down you know the well ro- well traveled path that brought us nowhere. But on the other hand. It's more likely in a, a in time of a crisis to know how to deal with it, and B whether you agree or disagree with the um, the policy, um, you know that it's more likely he's going to he or she is going to accomplish that policy if he has experience. So I'm a strong believer in experience. I think there always needs to be fresh blood, new blood. Yeah. You know, it can be wrong. I don't want people who have you know way way you know 50 years of experience and haven't changed in 50 years. But I'll always take experience over and lack of experience in any governmental job because it's too important. Yeah, see, the, here's the thing. For me, there's the bureaucracy is nowhere in the Constitution. I mean, this has all been fabricated and developed since the 1900 or 1800, really. So 
<laughs> you know, you have these people have. Just remember one thing, though: the bureaucracy. You know, that's a question of, you know, a decision of bureaucracy. But the fact of the matter is, um, the Constitution was created because the founders and the and the states at that point realized that the United States needed a strong central government with a strong executive. Well, that's what Hamilton and that thought. That was the goal of the, you know, the Constitution in the United States of America, as opposed to the Confederation of States. Yeah. The goal there was a strong government, a strong central government, with a strong executive. Now, how strong it should be, and and how many bureaucrats it needs to do it—that's a whole other question. And I'm sure over the years there are too many of them. Yeah. But that was the concept. The Constitution called for a strong central government. Yeah. I don't think the people realized. I don't think the people really identified with the United States until the Civil War. In other words, I think most people thought of themselves as being from Kentucky or being... Yeah, they still thought of themselves from states. Certainly in the South, it was very much the case. Uh, But that wasn't the vision of uh, Hamilton. It wasn't the vision of Jefferson. It wasn't the vision of the Founding Fathers. They they believed in a strong strong country. You know, Mark, as as a... We didn't have national media. Yeah. There was nothing tying people together. You know, the the Civil War was also the period in 1848 the telegraph was invented. Yeah. And by the Civil War, we had national news. You know, Mark, as usual, at the very end of our conversation, it really becomes interesting. So I, I apologize for this, but I have to move on in the show. But nevertheless, I really appreciate your commentary here in the show, Mark. Thank you so much for have joining us. Have a wonderful us. week, Bob. You as well. Again, HistoryCentral.com is the uh, website. And uh, Mark and I disagree. I would say probably it's... A, uh, yeah, we're 180 degrees on most internal things in the United States, but I find his commentary to be very interesting. I hope you do as well. All right, coming up, Larry Reed. He is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Offshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. By the way, listening to the commercial Golf Show Playhouse, I proudly serve on the board for as board chairman for 15 years and so proud of that organization. They do great work, and I hope you'll get tickets and visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Larry Reed, President Emeritus 
of a terrific organization. It's called the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure, Larry. And tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. Our organization is privately funded, and our focus is on high school and college students. We try to educate and inspire them in ideas of free enterprise, entrepreneurship, private property, limited government, and personal character. We do that through our website, uh, which is feefee.org, and also through online events and videos and in-person events as well, uh, all over the country and sometimes abroad. Yeah, great organization, and if you want to have a positive impact on a young person, college, or high school age, introduce them to the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. I've seen it. I've watched some of these conferences, and they are so inspiring. Uh, Fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, uh, you wrote a really timely column. It's called 11 of the Most Memorable Acts of Civil Disobedience in History. Really a great read. Maybe you can tell us about it. Okay. Yeah, civil disobedience in one form or another is certainly in the news at the moment. Uh, And because of the events in Washington last week, there are a lot of people who are frowning upon the very notion of civil disobedience. And certainly the violence of last week can hardly be justified. But uh, we should not forget that civil disobedience has a very honorable and very long history Uh, when people feel as though there is no alternative uh, to tyranny but to rise up against it, um, there are ways that uh, they have done that that minimizes the harm to innocence and makes a strong case and sometimes actually does lead to uh, necessary changes. Absolutely. In fact, uh, you cite uh, Henry David Thoreau, who famously asked, must citizens ever for a moment or at least degree resign his conscience to a legislator? Why has every man a conscience then? I think that we should all be men first and subjects afterwards. Boy, I think that speaks directly to the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. Yes, it sure does. And, uh, you know, if you look back at some of those examples of it in history, the oldest one goes way back about 3,500 years ago. It's described in the book of Exodus in the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, and it involves uh, two midwives in Egypt, their names were Shifra and Pua, and they disobeyed an order from the Pharaoh to kill all male Hebrew babies at birth. And when the Pharaoh called them back in to say, hey, I told you to, to, to kill those babies, why didn't you? Uh, they lied uh, to cover their tracks. And uh, the Exodus account goes on to say that their defiance pleased God, who rewarded them for it. So mm-hmm. anybody who might be tempted to say that God is always on the side of the politicians, uh, would have to wrestle with that one. I would say it's looking less and less that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, your second was uh, Sophocles' portrayal of Antigone. Yes. Uh, now, this is a fictional account, but it is very old and rather famous. The Greek playwright Sophocles, who wrote uh, numerous literary tragedies, uh, tells the tale of Antigone. Uh, Antigone uh, was wanting to bury her brother, to give him a proper burial, but the king, uh, named Creon, refused to allow her to do that, and she declared uh, her conscience to be more important than any royal decree, and so she went ahead with it and uh, was sentenced to death for her defiance, but she never recanted against uh, the idea that her brother deserved a proper burial. Yeah. So these are, and some impact, or very impactful uh, roles. I, I'm not sure that you mentioned Martin Luther King uh, in, the, in the column, but certainly he exhibited, uh, uh, he wanted peaceful uh, resistance to uh, the, civil disobedience is really what he was talking about. In fact, his column is a letter from the jail in Birmingham is so inspirational, but uh, there's a guy, modern day, who stood up against what he considered to be tyranny to uh, in the support of black people so they could uh, be judged not on the their, uh, their color but on the content of their character. Yes, and uh, that's a good uh, opportunity to, to bring up not only his uh, struggle but also uh, uh, the struggle of black Americans going back to uh, the days of slavery. It was an act of civil disobedience, of course, for a slave to uh, uh, to escape, 
uh, to make his way, uh, if he could, uh, to a northern state or to Canada on the Underground Railroad. That was civil disobedience. The people who helped escaping slaves along the way acted against the law, so they were committing self, uh, or civil disobedience. After the Civil War, of course, uh, many states adopted Jim Crow laws, uh, the forcible separation of the races, and mm -hmm. people who defied that, like Rosa Parks, who started the Montgomery bus boycott, famously, because she wouldn't take her assigned seat in the back of the bus, uh, they all committed civil disobedience. And you know, th those are especially commendable acts because they did not involve the um, uh, endangerment or, or, or the killing or the injury of any innocents, but rather um, simple defiance of a law that was, or laws that were uh, indefensible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and one I'm not sure you mentioned in the column either is Frederick Douglass, who learned to read uh, when he was uh, a young boy as a slave. It was still in... Uh, a subject of slavery at the time, it was against the law for black people who were slaves to, to be educated. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know, Stonewall Jackson, uh, famous uh, for his uh, command on the battlefield during the Civil War, actually committed a kind of civil disobedience before the war in spite of the law in Virginia that forbade the teaching of uh, slaves. Uh, he taught a Sunday school class for uh, slaves before mm. the Civil War, teaching them both uh, principles from the Bible as well as uh, uh, better English. Yeah, and of course, uh, you have to think of Gandhi when you think about civil disobedience and his hunger strike. Uh, there's a guy that actually changed a nation, India, uh, with his leadership, with peacefully, with, uh, with uh, civil disobedience. That's right. It was way back in 1930 that he organized his famous Salt March, uh, and that was stimulated by the fact that the, uh, the, in British-ruled India, British companies enjoyed monopoly privileges, and Britain passed the Salt Act in 1882 that forbade Indians from collecting or selling salt, which was a very important dietary staple. They had to uh, buy it from the British. And uh, uh, Gandhi saw that not only as uh, uh, oppressive and costly to Indians, uh, but something that he felt he had to rise up against. Yeah. And in a peaceful march to the sea, about 240 miles, uh, Gandhi and uh, uh, several hundred thousand Indians marched. 55,000 were arrested. But it really started the uh, independence movement for India. And 17 years later, in 1947, that independence movement succeeded, mm -hmm. largely through peaceful means. Peaceful, exactly. And, uh, you know, again, just a reminder that uh, the people ultimately will have a say about who, who is going to be their leader. They may put up with oppression for a while, but ultimately they can and many times do rise up against the oppressors. Uh, Larry, just a real pleasure to have you on the show. Again, the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, F-E-E.org. Wish we could talk more about this. I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of two uh, great murder mysteries in Washington, D.C., Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you or a family member suffer from chronic pain in your knees, hips, or shoulders? Joint pain can be a nagging and serious problem requiring expert and compassionate care. I know I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. Until 2006, I was suffering debilitating pain and deformity in my knees. I couldn't enjoy biking or golf or even sleep without chronic pain as a constant companion. Thanks to Dr. George Markovich and the professional staff at the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, my pain is gone, and I'm back to doing the activities I enjoy with no pain. I have a lifestyle I can only imagine. Imagine prior to knee surgery, and you can too. Call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. They will thoroughly evaluate your condition, provide personalized, state-of-the-art treatment, and help you relieve your pain and get back to your active lifestyle. At the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, your care will be professionally managed through every phase of your recovery. For an initial consultation, call the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine, located off Tamiami Trail in Bonita Springs, at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. 
You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Hearing that commercial about uh, advertising on the show, I just do want to thank my advertisers for their support. I can't do the show without that. And uh, they've been so loyal to the program, and I genuinely appreciate the support for all of them. So I hope you'll patronize them and uh, let them know that you listen to the Bob Harden Show. We have with us Jim McTagg. As I mentioned, he's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. He had his own White House press pass. But uh, right now he's retired and he's writing. He's written his last two books, are great murder mysteries in Washington, D.C. Shake the Money Tree and its sequel, I'm sorry, uh, Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's uh, wonderful to be on your show, Bob. Uh, it's freezing up here, and, and, and uh, I can feel the uh, Naples heat over the phone line. Well, it's a little so, chilly right down here right now. J- January is always, I think, the uh, least pleasant month in Florida, in spite of the hurricane season and all that type of thing. But anyhow, I get your message. Now, you're in Washington, D.C., or close to the Beltway right there, inside the Beltway. Uh, uh, I hear that uh, things are uh, kind of on lockdown up there. Well, you know, they've, I live in Alexandria, Virginia. I live six miles from the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And when I go out to my corner, I can see the Washington Monument. So, so yesterday, uh, I used to commute for years to downtown Washington. My office was two blocks uh, from the White House. So yesterday, I got nostalgic. And in light of the uh, insurrection uh, last week, I, w- I wanted to go down and see see the aftermath. So I boarded the metro train at the Braddock Road Station, which is eight-tenths of a mile from my house. I walk there. And uh, I, I have to tell you, people here in, in Alexandria and in Washington, D.C., uh, they mask up uh, out, outdoors as well as indoors. Mm. I just want to point out, I don't know what it is, what the practice is in, in Florida, but people here are on lockdown, not because of the riots, but because of the fear of uh, COVID. Yeah. So I, I get on the metro, I have an entire car to myself, and those cars can hold uh, 100 people yep. minimum. I have the whole car to myself. Uh, I go down to Washington, D.C., I get off at uh, Farragut West, which is uh, two blocks from the White House. Sure. Come up, you know, the Army and Navy Club is right there. Uh, Farragut Square, a beautiful park. And I walk to the White House, and then you're in a whole different uh, dystopian world. Um, the White House looks like a um, fortress out of uh, North Korea or communist era Berlin with all the uh, security fences around it. Pennsylvania Avenue is blocked off. Uh, downtown D.C. was a ghost town. I walk around the entire White House perimeter past the National Christmas Tree, and you, you can you can barely see the White House anymore. Um, you know, it's no longer the People's House; it's like a bunker. I yeah. mean, it has it has three or four sets of fences to keep yeah. intruders out. Well, that's been that way. They had the barriers there uh, primarily, I guess, because of the fear of the, uh, uh, the terrorists going back to just after nine eleven. So. Uh, nevertheless, though, it, it is no longer... The, I, it's never been that bad, though. I was there. I've been there. I've been in Washington since the Reagan administration. Uh, I have never seen this level of uh, fencing security. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, just unfortunate. Incredible. So um, I walked up to the Trump Hotel, and uh, it's up Pennsylvania Avenue, and I 
I'm jaywalking on major streets constantly because there is no automobile traffic. Wow. It really looks like Washington has been evacuated. Yeah. Uh, um, I saw more police on the, on the streets and, and, and Secret Service than tourists. In front of the Trump Hotel, uh, there is, by the way, you walk past the Reagan Building and, and uh, the Moynihan Plaza on the way to the uh, Trump Hotel, Two names from the from the past that uh, I greatly respect. I wish we had a uh, Ronald Reagan and a Daniel Patrick Moynihan on the scene today. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, we don't. Yeah. But the Trump Hotel is uh, has a guard station now. I guess they always did, but they have a big sign. Unless you're a guest or you have a personal invitation to the hotel, you're not welcome there. Yeah. And I can remember in 2015. I could just walk in and go into the bar and have a drink if I felt like it. Right. You know, it was, it was an open place of business, but uh, they had the siege mentality at the Trump uh, Hotel as, as well. But uh, the only tourists I saw were um, people, uh, uh, you know, a, uh, a sort of electric bike tour that stopped in front of the Trump Hotel for a little bit and then, and then went on. Uh, but but uh, again, uh, Washington looks like a ghost town. Uh, if you're a uh, if you're an avid walker like I am, that's my favorite sort of exercise. Uh, this is probably the best time ever to come to Washington. Yeah, because there are so few people. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jim, uh, before I let you go, though, I do want to the the the, uh, uh, the market is levitating, and uh, of course, right now we've had a shutdown of the economy for for a while. Uh, some states are vibrant and uh, doing business like Florida. So others are like California shut down. Now they've got a rule that you can't go more than 150 miles, 120 miles from your home. Unbelievable. So, uh, but nevertheless, so the market has been so healthy up to this point. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the market has has digested uh, Joe Biden. I mean, the market has never been uh, considered Democrats radioactive. Uh, you know, I think in my lifetime, the, the best market was when Clinton was president, right. Clinton Gore, because they appreciated the uh, paying down the national debt. They were, you know, in in retrospect, they look like the most uh, fiscally conservative administration we ever had. Uh, now, what I think what the market sees with Biden, it's a little cynical. It sees that he'll be uh, engaged in industrial engineering, which never works out well in the long run or even the short run. But uh, that's why people are pouring into green energy stocks. Uh, they see the see Biden picking winners and losers in the energy sector, and yeah. he'll pick green energy, as Obama did with disastrous effects. And, oh my you know, God! I'm God help us, Solyndra. <laughs> God help yeah. us, Jim. So, uh, but I, yeah, I think you're making a good point, which is the market doesn't care about politics. In fact, the market doesn't care much about what happens in two years or three years. It's pretty much focused on. Uh, what's going to happen in the next three or six months? So, uh, and, and it's apolitical. And for example, uh, what Biden represents, in my opinion, is opening up the China markets, whereas we were seeing under President Donald Trump closing them down because his his view that uh, they were an enemy, which of course they are. So, uh, I think I think it could be robust in that way for for markets, even though it's not right the right thing to do in terms of uh, diplomacy. What the right thing to do is, and, and this is where uh, Trump fell flat on his face, uh, the virus is a national emergency. It has crippled our economy. It has frayed our social fabric. It's the biggest crisis facing the nation, not these marchers. I mean, I mean, as, as distasteful as I found that march, the biggest national emergency remains this virus. So I think the market believes that, that Biden will have more of a focus on getting the vaccine from the freezers into our biceps than the Trump administration. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a long history with vaccines going back to polio about whether it should be the states administering it or the federal government. Yeah. Uh, but during the Eisenhower administration, the federal government left it up to the states but gave them grants, gave them the money to implement this, and I think the market perceives that that Biden will will take some federal action to speed up 
the uh, injections, and, and that's also a positive for Wall Street because, again, the economy and, and the country are at stake here. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I choose to disagree with you in terms of what Biden's going to do. I don't think it will be good for the country, but irrespective, I really appreciate your commentary here on the show, Jim. Again, the books are uh, Shake the Money Tree and, and Follow the Leader and uh, Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries. Jim, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. And you can read the books out of order. Yeah, you can. They're great books. Thank you, Jim. That's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll get great guests lined up for tomorrow. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends. And uh, I always appreciate hearing from you. Bob Harden at Hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>